chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, and I'd like to begin reading with verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death in all the churches, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your work. Our Father, we come humbly again tonight, knowing that we must have the help of the Lord in all that we do. Help us and anoint our lips of clay to speak for the next few minutes the words that we feel would be a blessing and a help and also a warning to this camp. Bless our visitors and the officials that are here on this platform. Keep your hand upon all of our lives and help us to be ready for your coming. Stop that one that's closest to eternity tonight and somehow cause them to think seriously and have a desire born deep in their hearts to want to seek God while he may be found and call upon him while he's near. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. amen. May be seated. Now I'm here to preach to you tonight. And I am, I am using a subject that is in the form of a question, and I trust and pray that uh, we could drive some things home because I come with a very serious message. I'm entitling the message tonight, Would You Name Your Daughter Jezebel? Would You Name Your Daughter Jezebel? Do you know anybody in this world by that name? I doubt it. There's only one name in the Old Testament that uh, was attached to a woman, Jezebel. You never hear it again. There, are, there were hundreds of years that transpired before you hear it again, and it's over in the book of Revelation, and it comes in the form of a warning. Now, how could we describe this woman? It would take a skillful photographer to picture her as she actually was. Beautiful, cunning, conniving, charming, yet wicked, licentious, idolatrous, even a murderess. But more than that, Jezebel represents a prophecy a history, a spirit, and this is called the spirit of rebellion. This woman made such an impact upon Bible history, 
that has filtered through the world that no mother, when she holds that beautiful, tiny, innocent baby girl in her arms, has a desire to call her Jezebel. Now, there must be a reason for all of this. The Lord said, I have a few things against this woman. I bring five indictments against her tonight. First of all, she was the one who introduced a special form of idolatry to Israel. In the 18th chapter of the book of 1 Kings tells us that the priest who, who uh, offered idols to the idol that she erected, the sun god, Baal, they ate with her at her table. She had special places prepared for them. 450 of them lived in the temple and served day and night. 400 others lived in the groves in a special place, but they were her false prophets. In introducing this special form of idolatry, she introduced a special form of sin. For we are told that in this temple that was erected to the sun god Baal, that the women were instructed, they were to spend seasons of their time in that temple, giving themselves over to immorality as a form of worship, actually a form of worship. This was a special form of idolatry that was introduced to Israel, and God said, I have somewhat against her. The second indictment against Jezebel was the fact that she introduced ways of vanity. The Bible tells us that she was the first one to paint her face. She introduced makeup to the world. But strange as it may seem, makeup was not given to the world through a woman, but through the spirit of Jezebel, which is the spirit of Babylon, which is the spirit of idolatry, which is the spirit of rebellion. In ancient Babylon, the young men dyed and curled their hair, rouged their cheeks, wore earrings and necklaces and special ornaments on their bodies, perfumed themselves. And so it was through the young men that makeup actually was introduced into the world. Did you know that before the year 1900, practically no one in America except actresses used this? Up until 1917, there were only two beauty salons that had to pay taxes. Up until uh, 1927, there were 18,000. And since that time, of course, it numbers into the millions. Why do we preach against these things? Why do we preach against graven Im images? Why do we preach against vanities of this world? Why do our Pentecostal ladies have their plain look about them and their long hair? Why do they have that beautiful look of holiness, an expression of the glory of God? It is simply because we do not want to be identified with the spirit of rebellion. And that's what it all amounts to. And after it's all summed up, 
you could say that we could attribute it to rebellion. Now, rebellion is a particular sin. Rebellion is a sin in the Bible in which there is no return. I don't know of anyone in God's holy word who ever rebelled or was guilty of the sin of rebellion that ever came back. You try to think if you can. There was Saul, this great king of Israel, who stood head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. This man was little in his own sight when he began his reign over Israel. But there came that time in his life that he thought he could intrude into the position that was reserved for priesthood. He dared to step to an altar and offer a sacrifice. In offering that sacrifice, he was manifesting a spirit of rebellion that God was against. And the reason God is against rebellion is because it has its roots in eternity and goes to an archangel called Lucifer who rebelled against the Almighty God. And so since that time, the spirit of rebellion that has been projected into this world is a result of that original sin that started in that other dimension back before there ever was a world, back before time began, when he said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And uh, he wanted praise and honor to himself. And when he did that, of course, you know the story. He was cast out of heaven and since that time has become the prince of this world, the god of this world, breeding that spirit that he brought to this world with him, the spirit of rebellion. Samuel, the prophet of God, came to Saul and said, Saul, why have you done this thing? He said, I could wait no longer. And then there came another time in his life when he rebelled against God at Amalek when he was supposed to have utterly destroyed the Amalekites and Agag the king. And then the Bible tells us that he spared the best. And Samuel came and said, Saul, when thou wast little in thine own sight, God made thee king over Israel. But now because you have manifest the spirit of rebellion, remember Saul, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft that goes to idolatry, that goes to Babylon, that spirit that is against Almighty God. And because of that spirit, you have lost out with God. The third indictment against Jezebel was the fact that she was a dominating wife. She reduced her husband to a spineless creature, talking to him daily, pressing in upon him, desiring her own will and her own way until finally everything that this woman wanted, her husband gave it to her. Her idol gods, her prophets of the groves, her prophets of the temple, the special temple that he built, and uh, the fact that she could have her own ways of sinning in that temple. The fourth indictment against Jezebel was the fact that she was a schemer, not just against men, but against God's way, against Almighty God. She tried to change the standards of Israel. 
She tried to take everything that was pure and good and holy and clean and upright and reduce it to dust and ashes and make a mockery of it with her idolatry and her ways of sinning. In Numbers, the 27th chapter, God had the laws of inheritance. The inheritance right was something that could not be changed and could not be altered. She was scheming to change these inheritance rights, but further than that, she was trying to get to Almighty God that Israel worshiped. And in changing these laws and these standards, she was somehow degrading the God that Israel worshiped and loved and served. And so if you have the spirit of Jezebel tonight, if there is something in your heart that is filled with lust and evil and sin and wickedness and idolatrous living and sinful practices, if you please, and you want to change God's beautiful, holy standards that was set for womanhood, then go ahead and name your daughter Jezebel because that's the spirit that is certainly prevalent in the world tonight. You know it's the truth. That spirit that is to tear down everything that is unlike God. But I want you to know there is a truth of God's Word. There is a truth that we can stand for square on tonight. And we will be safe as long as we obey the truth of God's Holy Word. Now the fifth indictment against Jezebel was the fact that she killed the prophets. And the Bible said, touch not mine anointed. Do my prophets no harm. It would seem that she had gotten away with it for a while because she was able to continue her daily life without any recourse, without any judgment, without a reckoning day. But the Bible tells us that God gave her space to repent. But she repented not of her fornication. Somebody said the mills of God grind slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. And I want to tell you tonight, God never uh, allows any member of his church to put forth a hand to touch his anointing. And any time you do it, you are manifesting the spirit of Jezebel, which is the spirit of Babylon, which is the spirit of idolatry, which is against the throne of God, if you please. And if you have that spirit and you're sitting in a church somewhere just waiting for an opportunity to talk about that man who preaches the word of God and stands behind a sacred death, and you have a desire to put your hand upon his life and to try to bring him down or to mar his character or to degrade him some way, let me tell you, you might as well go home and name your daughter Jezebel because that's the Jezebel spirit and you know that it is the truth. But now, this is what I want to get at. After these five indictments against this woman who introduced all these things to Israel, God says she's not going to escape. The day of reckoning is coming. The judgment from Almighty God is going to come to pass. And, and that's exactly what happened. Now the spirit of Jezebel is headed in this hour for judgment because it is the spirit of rebellion. It is the spirit of Babylon. 
It is the spirit of Jezebel. You go back with me just for a moment. The Tower of Babel, men got together. God said, I want you to multiply, scatter abroad. I want you to uh, populate the earth, replenish the earth. They got together and they said, let's build a tower that will reach into the heaven. Let's make a name for ourselves. And so they got together. Off of the drawing board came a plan. And it was quite a structure that they started. They worked hard and faithfully and long hours. They built this tower. It was reaching into the heaven. And God said, it's in their hearts. They're going to do it. It is a form of rebellion against God. And so the Bible tells us that God confused their tongue. They woke up one morning and could not communicate to each other. The brick mason couldn't talk to the mortar boy. And uh, the brick mason couldn't talk to the architect. And so everything stopped. The Bible said they left off building the tower. This was God's way of judgment against them. And it scattered them abroad uh, upon the face of the earth. Then later on, you see Israel out in uh, the land of Canaan conquering the land. God said, see to it that you do not take of the accursed thing. And uh, the Bible tells us in the middle of the night when the ruins of Jericho were still smoldering from that great destruction after God's people marched around and the walls fell down. There's a man that's stealing in the middle of the night and he looks around and he sees a Babylonian garment and he takes that garment and he hides it in his tent. It is a form of rebellion against God. It is the spirit of Jezebel, if you please. And he hid it in his tent and he thought everything was all right. But the next day, when Israel went to defeat Ai, they were defeated in turn by the enemy. Joshua fell on his face and began to question God about it. God said, Joshua, get up off of your face. Don't you know there's sin in the camp? And you'd better do some probing and some digging and some searching until you find out what is wrong. And so they went man to man, tribe by tribe, until they finally found the sinner, the one who was guilty. God did not want any part of Babylon connected with his people. A Babylonian garment caused the judgment of God upon them. Why? Because it represented the spirit of Lucifer, the son of the morning. It represented the spirit of Jezebel, which is rebellion against Almighty God. If you have any form of rebellion in your heart tonight, I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's word that you'll never make it. You'll never make it. You'll never make it. The judgment of God will come upon you. Later on, Babylon takes on another form. It started out as a tower. It was a garment. It became a country and more specifically a city. It was called ancient Babylon one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. How beautiful, how magnificent. And the word Babylon is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Babel, which means confusion or man's way versus God's way. It was Nebuchadnezzar, the king of that great kingdom, who stepped out on his palace and he said, look at this great Babylon that I have made. 
the splendor and the glory of it all. Look what I have done. And about that time, the voice of God said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are not giving glory where glory belongs. And I'll give you one year, one year to get your house in order, to change your attitude. I'm giving you space to repent. But the Bible tells us at the end of that year, the pride of his heart was still lifted up. And he failed to give glory to God. He loved that spirit of rebellion. And then he found himself out in the fields uh, eating grass like the oxen. Uh, and his fingernails grew to be claws. Uh, and his hair looked like bird feathers. Uh, and he was wet with the dew of heaven uh, because uh, of that spirit of rebellion. Uh, he might as well name his daughters uh, Jezebel because that was the spirit uh, that he manifested. And God was so much against it that he allowed even another king, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, to reign and to rule over Babylon. And so Belshazzar uh, failed to give glory to God, brought the, the sacred vessels that were taken from the house of God in a great moment of a party and drinking and wine and dance and song. He called for those things that, that were reserved for the holiness of God. He dared to pour wine in the goblets uh, and toast them to the gods of silver and gold and wood and stone. Uh, and as he lifted the glass to his mouth, uh, he looked over against the wall uh, and he saw a man's hand. That's all. Just the fingers of a man writing on the wall. Mean it, mean it. Seek out, you fashion. And he called his astrologers, soothsayers, and magicians. Uh, who came from the spirit of rebellion and was born of idolatry. They came in to try to interpret But I want you to know there are some sacred things uh, that cannot be interpreted by the occult uh, or by astrologers uh, or soothsayers uh, or magicians of this world. It's preserved as sacred and precious and holy in the word of God. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad tonight? that we stand for a gospel message that is not deluded, it's not watered down, it's not compromised, but it is a strange place, place, a sweet, precious, holy message. Thank God, right straight from the Word of God. And I appreciate it and love it tonight. We were in Salt Lake City for General Conference a couple of years ago. We were invited into the LDS boardroom, and uh, my dad's background was Mormonism until he heard the gospel message and God filled him with the Holy Ghost. He got baptized in Jesus' name. We sat in there about an hour with President Lee and his two first vice presidents, and the secretary recorded every word of the conversation. They told us all about their great church, and it is a tremendous organization. And they are compassing sea and land, making proselytes wherever they can. And uh, then he allowed us to ask questions. But all of the time during the discourse of this conversation, he kept saying, we're glad that you folks are here. But remember, you're just another religious group. You belong to all of the rest of the church world. You're, we are different. The Mormon church is separate. 
It's set apart. It's all by itself. And he kept lumping us in with everybody else. I wasn't about to leave that room and let him get by with that. Finally, I said, President Lee, I'd like for you to know that we are different from all the peoples of this world. Inasmuch as we believe in the doctrine of monotheism, there is only one God. And we, furthermore, we baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, which makes us separate and different and set apart from all the peoples of the world. I said, in fact, President Lee, you believe in a trinity of God, so does the rest of the church world. You baptize in the titles Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, so does the rest of the church world. But we believe that one God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Praise God. Or oh, he said, now what are you going to do with Matthew 28 and 19? Brother, that's our favorite scripture. We are the only people in the world who know what to do with Matthew 28 and 19. Thank God. Because when we baptize in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Ghost, we know what the name is. These were titles, but the name of Jesus is the name of the Father. The name of Jesus is the name of the Son. The name of Jesus is the name of the Holy Ghost. And these three are one to three. Praise God. Hallelujah. He said, oh, that's just a play on words. Brother Erickson said, yes, wait just a minute. President Lee, you sign all the important documents for the Mormon church. He said, yes, sir. Do you sign on the dotted line, just president? Or do you put your name, Lee, by the side of president to make it authentic? He said, yes, I put my name. He said, that's different. We're not talking about something like that. And he stood up and he dismissed us. He was ready for us to go. But thank God for the tree. Hallelujah. We're not going to name our daughters Jezebel. No siree. Praise God. I remember those old-fashioned meetings back when Pentecost was getting started in these last days. Revivals over the country. And I was born into this. But I want you to know there came that time in my life that I had to go on more than what Dad had to say. More than what those around me had to say. I had to thumb through this book for myself. I had to get my own personal revelation of who Jesus really was. I had to decide for myself uh, if he was God number one, God number two, or what he was. And I found out uh, through the revelation of God, uh, hallelujah, that he was the almighty God manifest in the flesh. And the only way you can ever see God is in the face of Jesus Christ. Praise God for that truth. My dad had a big old long automobile that we used in those days. And with the family our size, it took a big car. There was nine of us. And he'd travel over the country, and uh, we had a three-seater. You folded the seats down in the center. And he wrote uh, messages on the windows. 
Obey Acts 238 and live. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And that old man loved this truth so much he was willing to bleed for it. He'd pull that old car up to the side of a tent meeting and he got bold, I thought, and a little bit reckless, really. He'd get up before that congregation and he'd say, if anybody under the sound of my voice can prove to me where the apostles or the early church ever baptized any other way, only in the name of Jesus Christ, I will give you the automobile. Well, brother, as a kid, I'd sit there trembling. That was our house and our home. That was all we had. And I thought, no, I could just see us going down the road. Dad carrying a box and Mom carrying a box. And R.G. carrying a box and Odetta and Blanche and Claude Jr. and Elizabeth and Omida. And then I came along. I could see all of us going down the road carrying a box or a suitcase because a preacher got reckless and stuck his neck out and he couldn't back it up. But you know, friend, nobody ever came and got that car. If I were a lawyer tonight, I would write a track and I would show by the, the, by the finance that a lawyer would have how that it would be impossible to use Matthew 28 and 19 because these were not names. They were only titles, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. They didn't know what he was. He was the Father of creation. He was the Son in redemption. He is the Holy Ghost in the midst of the church tonight. Hallelujah. One Monday morning, Brother Weeks, one Monday morning, a Baptist preacher knocked on the door. And he said, uh, Reverend Kilgore, and introduced himself. He said, are you an honest man? My dad said, yes, sir. He said, I came by your tent meeting last night after church, my church was over, and I heard you make that statement. Now, if you're an honest man, I've come to get that automobile. And so my dad looked at him and said, sir, are you an honest man? And he said, yes, I am. Then come in. They sat across the table. My dad gave him a Bible and asked him to read scriptures. For 30 minutes or longer, he began to read scriptures just as fast as they could be given. And finally, this man closed his Bible, pushed his chair back from the table, and he said, Brother Kilgore, would you baptize me in the name of Jesus Christ? Praise God. I'm telling you folks, uh, this will stand when the world's on fire and the earth is wrapped in flames. The Book of Mormon will fall, but the Word of God will rise. The Book of Merabekaeta will fall, but the Word of God will rise. The Book of Wrestleism will fall, but the Word of God will rise. For God's Word is quick and powerful and endures to the end. Hallelujah! And when the soul wraps on fire, and the soul earth is wrapped in flames, God's Word is going to have the last say about everything. Thank God for the message of truth in this hour. This is not a message to compromise. This is not a message to water down. This is not a message to give in, to be broad-minded. This is a message to be preached 
Otherwise, we might as well name our daughter Jezebel because the spirit of Jezebel is the spirit of the untrue. It's the spirit of the false. It's the spirit of idolatry. It's the spirit of rebellion, if you please. And we're not going to have that. Amen. Daniel was called into the banquet hall. He looked at the message that was written on the wall. Oh, King Belshazzar, I've got sad news for you. You are weighed in the balance, and you're found wanting. And at that moment, the Medes and the Persians were making their way in uh, through a water pass to get inside of that magnificent city and overthrow them while they were in a drunken stupor. But I want to show you how God feels about this spirit. It is a serious thing. In the 13th chapter of the book of Isaiah, a strange prophecy is uttered against Babylon. It says, you're going to lie desolate. Your walls are going to be torn down. Walls that were 80 feet wide, 100 feet high, and 30 feet below the ground. God says, your walls, oh, ancient proud Babylon, are going to be thrown down. The windows of your palaces are going to be broken off. The doors are going to fall on their hinges. And the fowls of the air are going to come and light in this beautiful palace hall. And the jackals will sing in the night. And the wild beasts will go in and out the broken windows. And furthermore, satyrs are going to dance there in your broken down ruins. There are going to be demons that are going to come and dance in your palace hall. One of your own preachers of this district, who was a missionary for years in that country, talked about the sacred forests of Tibet. And a reporter told him firsthand that he paid a dear price to be outfitted with the attire of the devil worshippers just to be able to go into the sacred forest of Tibet and to see what was going on. And he said when they went in there that night, he was disguised and said these devil worshippers began to chant, Yaman Taka, Yaman Taka. Yaman Taka, over and over until the crescendo was so loud that it almost caused him to go out of his mind, he said. But while they were chanting Yaman Taka, which in the Syriac meant, Come on, devil, come on, devil, come on, devil. And lo and behold, to his amazement, he looked up and he saw demons, lustful spirits, uh, dancing in the palace halls uh, and in and out of the doors uh, of ancient Babylon. Isn't that what the Bible said would take place? Uh, I'm telling you, when God says something, uh, you'd better step, stand back. Uh, you'd better take notice. Uh, something is uh, going to happen, if you please. God made a dance hall for devils out of the beautiful palace called Babylon, if you please. Now, all Madeline Murray O'Hare and her fellow atheists would have to do is get their money together and go to that country and rebuild Babylon. And then they could shake their fist in the face of God 
and say, look, we have rebuilt the broken down walls. The palace has been restored. We know there's not a God now. That's all in the world it has to do because God said it will never be rebuilt and an inhabitant will never dwell there again. Amen. And until, from that day until this, there have been attempts to go in there to try to rebuild it, but they cannot do it. There's an eerie feeling, a spooky feeling, a wicked feeling there. Why is it? It's because the judgment of God is pronounced upon it, if you please. I'm here to tell you that God could make a dance hall for demons out of your life. You allow the spirit of rebellion, idolatry, new ways of sinning, and cover your life over. You are inviting the satyrs to come and dance there. It happened in Salome's life. Her life became a dance hall for demons. She stripped the clothing from her body, and she danced in the palace hall in front of King Herod. It pleased him so much that he said, I'll give you anything you want to the half of my kingdom. She said, I only want one thing. I want the head of that prophet. I want John the Baptist. I want you to take his life because he has sounded out against my mother and told her she was living in adultery. Her life became a dance hall for demons. And I'm, no, I'm, I'm not through yet. If you'll read the 14th chapter and the 18th chapters of the book of Revelation, Babylon takes on another form. It's not a tower now. It's not a city now. It becomes a religious spirit that moves throughout the whole earth. And if you read Revelation 18 and 2, you'll find almost the identical judgment pronounced upon that religious system as was pronounced upon ancient Babylon because of their idolatry and their wickedness and their rebellion against God. I'm not kidding tonight. The hour is going late. The sand of time is sifting through the hourglass. And what we do for God, we'd better do it quickly. We'd better get rid of all malice and strife and jealousy and hatred and evil speaking. Get it out of our hearts when we stand before God and we go to our grave with those spirits in our lives. It's kin to the spirit of rebellion. Amen. Those old timers used to preach to me, son, you might as well die with a package of cigarettes in your pocket and a glass of beer in your hand as to die with something in your heart that is not right. And if you think for one minute that you're big enough and strong enough and have the ability to retain these things and still love God, You've got another thing coming, friend. There's never been an individual lived on this earth that could retain jealousy and envy and strife and hatred and please God at the same time. And I want to tell you tonight, if you've got anything in your heart, if you don't get rid of it, go home and call your daughter Jezebel because that's the spirit that is manifested in your life. Amen. God pronounced judgment upon this religious system. And you're going to go down to defeat. Brother, I don't want to be in this old world when the things Brother Weeks talked about tonight takes place. Amen. The Bible said 
Jesus came in his Father's name, and they wouldn't receive him. But he said, another one's going to come in his own name, and you're going to receive him. And he's going to be the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalted himself above all that is called God, so that men will bow down and worship him. And I want to tell you folks something else that have got that old spirit of rebellion that thinks you can handle television. Let me give you a little message. You need to go home tonight and read the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation. Look what's going to happen to the two witnesses. God's going to send them after the church is gone and after the tribulation begins in this world and the Antichrist sets up his kingdom. God's going to allow his two faithful witnesses to march through the streets. And if any man tries to harm them, they're able to speak fire and it will devour them. And the Bible further says if anybody tries to kill them, the very means and methods they use to try to kill the first of these two faithful witnesses, God just turns it around. In other words, if somebody comes with a sword, just rushes it through, God causes that sword to turn, and they're pierced with it. They're killed with the very thing they thought they could kill God's two faithful witnesses with. Read it for yourself. It's there, and they're troubled. The world's troubled about these two. They're in the Antichrist way. He doesn't know what to do with them. But then all of a sudden, that spirit ascends from the bottomless pits of hell. And God allows it to rise and kill these two prophets and their bodies lie in the street. The first thing you do ordinarily when somebody's killed, you get them out of there. Drag them out of the streets. Go bury them somewhere. The Antichrist says, no, no, wait a minute, boys. You're not going to bury these two. I'm going to show the whole wide world what we have done. We've got rid of them. And you folks that are sitting around watching television after the rapture takes place, you're going to see it. All of a sudden, the, the newscaster's going to say, now we take you to the city of Jerusalem and we take you to these two strange, mysterious personages that have dealt so much trouble. And about that time, the cameras are trained upon these two bodies that lie in the street. And it's flashed all over the world. Read it for yourself. The Bible says every nation and people are going to see it and they're going to rejoice. They're going to clap their hands. They're going to shout up and down. He's going to call for a victory march around the, those bodies in the streets of Jerusalem. He's going to say, we got rid of our enemies at long last. It's over now. But oh, my friend, it's not over. It's not over. It's not over. Amen. Furthermore, the rulers say, let's send one another gifts. We got rid of our enemies. Let's send one another gifts. And they start shooting gifts across the sea to each other. That's what the Bible said. But about that time that they're rejoicing and the cameras are trained on these dead bodies, all of a sudden life comes inside of them. And if you're here tonight and you're here that hour, you're going to remember every little detail of this message tonight. It's going to burn in your heart. All of a sudden it's going to dawn on you. That's exactly what that preacher preached about. All of a sudden, these dead bodies rise up and stand on their feet in the middle of the street of Jerusalem. And God takes them up to heaven. And then an earthquake comes to the city so that a tenth part of the city is destroyed. Eight thousand men lose their lives, not counting 
the women and the children. Listen, friend, when God pronounces judgment, you better bow your head. You better take a salute. You better step back in awe and reverence because God means what he says. Amen. You say, Brother Kilgore, that disturbs me. That worries me. What can I do? Get under the blood. Get under the blood. Stay under the blood. Live for God. Have the victory. Shout at camp meeting. Praise God at camp meeting. Honor your leaders at camp meeting. Thank God. Pray for those in authority. But stay under the blood. That blood of protection will be a mighty force and deterrent against sin and evil and the powers of darkness and the Antichrist, if you please. Oh, God. Oh, God. I'm pouring myself out tonight. I'm wringing myself out to you. I ask God to let me preach tonight as though it would be the last time I'd ever preach in this world to try to reach souls. Oh, God, help us. The spirit of deception is in this world tonight. You could be deceived so easy. This is not an hour to run after great campaigns and great individuals and great personalities who are promoting themselves and parading the flesh and prophesying over people. You leave that thing alone. You shut the doors to that spirit because that goes back to an original spirit that I'm thinking about, that parading the flesh and wanting to be seen. Amen. In the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew, Jesus said, Be not deceived. Not one time. Not two times. Not three times. But four times in that chapter that describes conditions and activities and events of the end time. He says, Be not deceived. When he announces what's happening on the earth, then all of a sudden he stops everything and talks to his disciples. Be not deceived. And he talks a while longer and he stops again and he says, be not deceived. No, that's my message to you tonight. Don't let that spirit deceive your heart because you could be caught up in it and carried away with it and be lost because of it. Amen. Oh, Sister Mannion, just ready to sing. I want to tell you one little instant in closing. A couple of years ago, there was a missionary and his son out at the edge of the village. And they saw a man with long beard, long hair, flowing, long flowing white clothes, just out at the edge of the city, standing there. This 13-year-old missionary's son said, Daddy, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. And before his dad could stop him, he ran to that man. And he looked at that man and said, Sir, let me see your hands. So then the man looked at him with scorn. He said, Sir, please let me see your hands. The man showed him his hands. And the boy started backing away. And I don't see any press of nails there. I don't see any press of nails. 
We'd better go back to Castle Reason. We'd better get rid of our stinking, filthy pride. Oh, God. Get rid of everything that's unlike God. Go back to Calvary and say, Jesus, let me see your hands. Those hands that were nailed to a tree. Let me be covered by your blood one more time. 